0: There's so many things going on, there's a heightened sense of stress and anxiety that people are experiencing that are known to cause problems with good sleep.
1: Hi, and welcome to the next segment of our podcast series focused on critical issues faced by the disability community in the times of COVID-19. I'm Dr. Erica Weber, a research scientist in the Center for Traumatic Brain Injury Research here at Kessler Foundation, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Anthony Lecarica for a conversation on the all-important topic of sleep. Dr. Lecarica is a senior research scientist at the Center for Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation. He's also a clinical neuropsychologist with a background in sleep-wake disorders and has explored these conditions in the context of traumatic brain injury at Kessler. So to start off, what constitutes a sleep disorder and how is this an issue in the disability community?
0: There's a number of conditions that fall under the umbrella of sleep disorders and um, some of the most uh, common disorders tend to be uh, things that interfere with the ability to fall asleep or stay asleep throughout the night or to get a, a full night of restful sleep. And uh, within traumatic brain injury, there's a higher incidence of sleep disturbance, especially complaints related to insomnia or the inability to fall asleep or stay asleep. Sleep apnea also is gaining a lot of attention as a condition that is quite common after traumatic brain injury. And so, I think you know, there's other other sleep disturbances that are less common, uh, things like narcolepsy or uh, restless leg syndrome, uh, uh, periodic limb movement disorder, which is uh, movements during sleep that disrupt the continuity of sleep throughout the night. But uh, those are two, especially the ones that are gaining, I think, the most attention now are sleep apnea and uh, insomnia.
1: So I can imagine that what people probably feel most of the time is that they're They're just tired or don't really feel rested after a night of sleep. If you have insomnia, you might be more aware of your symptoms, but that may not always be the case. So how do these disorders tend to get noticed or diagnosed?
0: In some cases, it's actually the bed partner. If there's a person who has a bed partner for things like sleep apnea, they're typically the ones that notice first when they notice that the person Uh, snores especially is a big thing Uh, sleep apnea uh, one of the not that everybody snores will have sleep apnea but it's very common that most people who have sleep apnea tend to be snorers and um there's you know the bed partners will usually report that the the person will stop breathing during the night uh not for very long periods of time but they'll hear snoring and then they'll hear it stop and the person's kind of not breathing for a while and then they'll kind of catch their breath and sometimes when you ask the person in the morning uh, you know did you stop breathing in the night or did you wake up last night or and this can happen hundreds of times in the night and the person may not even be aware of it it's usually the um, but they may be aware of other symptoms like being groggy during the day or um, uh, you know waking up with a dry mouth or having a headache or uh, other symptoms like that uh, in the morning, and uh, usually, uh, the it's the the person who's, you know, there to observe these things will will be aware of it, but the person who is experiencing it might not always be aware.
1: Yeah. So this really sheds light on how caregivers and other people in the home can really help people, let's say, with the TBI. Notice what symptoms are happening and be able to help pinpoint the origin, and at least give that information to to the doctor. So it's more of a a family visit. It sounds like that would be helpful when they they go into to speak with a their primary care or sleep specialist. So what's usually the the track to diagnosis for these sorts of disorders?
0: Typically, it's you know now there's a lot more awareness. Traditionally, it, it these things were overlooked and underdiagnosed but now as uh, more there's more attention in the media and people are more aware uh, more more physicians even primary care physicians are starting to ask these questions usually it just takes a, a doctor doing a good clinical interview to you know know the the right questions to ask and also to know some of the signs that, uh, you know, sleep apnea tends to be associated with certain uh, aspects of uh, physiology that, that lead to obstruction in the upper airway, um, like, uh, you know, obesity, especially having, uh, there's a lot of studies that have shown even neck size to be a, a factor. People with larger neck sizes tend to be at risk. Um, and, uh, so usually it's a good clinical interview. We'll, we'll draw these out and knowing the right questions to ask, but it's always good for, for consumers to be informed about these things so that, you know, when you notice something that might not be right, you could definitely bring it up to your, uh, physician if they don't, you know, voluntarily ask for it and get directed to the the right treatment.
1: Right. It sounds like being able to really notice these things and then go to speak to um, a physician is, is really kind of the, the gold standard for, for what's, um, what's being useful to, to getting diagnosed and getting hooked up with the right treatment.
0: Typically with uh, insomnia, there's uh, consequences during the day. Even sleep apnea, when it's severe enough, there are consequences during the day that may play out as excessive daytime sleepiness. With insomnia, it tends to be people realizing that they're just exhausted during the day. Um, I think insomnia is more uh, people are more aware of uh, the not being able to sleep, and it, it tends to cause a great deal of distress. and uh, And then, which in turn makes it even worse because when you're anxious, it's kind of a, an aroused state of of being, and that's not conducive to sleep. So. Um, those kinds of things tend to be easier to for the person themselves to recognize.
1: Right, and that's a good point that you bring up, that this has got to intersect so much with important things like mood and anxiety and well-being. Because I imagine it can go both ways, right? That being anxious or depressed might interact with your ability to sleep, but also not getting a good restful night of sleep might also have a negative impact on your mood, anxiety, and how you're feeling during the day.
0: yeah, that, that's an excellent point. There's uh, one of the biggest issues, especially in chronic insomnia, is that uh, certain patterns develop over time and uh, and they kind of feed into the problem. Uh, you know the you're you're exactly right that when you don't get a, a good night of sleep, people tend to be more irritable, have a shorter temper, uh, and it you know can make it difficult to function during the daytime, difficult to concentrate, and for people that already have cognitive impairment from either a brain injury or another condition, it can make it difficult uh, even more difficult. And for people that experience fatigue during the day, that is the kind of cognitive fatigue that we see after a brain injury or or other uh, disabilities that where fatigue or MS, where fatigue tends to be a part of it, uh, having insomnia tends to make that just a lot worse. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a cycle, the the worse you feel during the day, the lower your mood. And, uh, you know, when when your anxiety, it starts to become kind of a cycle. And uh, one of the, the most common things that we see is insomnia that goes from being an acute condition to becoming more chronic or long-lasting. And it's because of these factors that kind of keep it, uh, we call them perpetuating factors, that kind of uh, cause uh, patterns of behavior and changes in mood and things like that, which kind of make the disorder last for longer periods of time.
1: We've already laid out that people with a traumatic brain injury or potentially other neurological disorders might be at greater risk for sleep disorders in general. But based on what you just said, it sounds like right now during the coronavirus pandemic, people might be a lot more at risk for having sleep problems that might develop into sleep disorders because of these sorts of perpetuating problems like depression, anxiety, and and these other behaviors.
0: Yeah, there's actually a lot of issues that uh, come up now. With you know, the there's so many things going on. There's a heightened sense of stress and anxiety that people are experiencing that are known to cause problems with, uh, you know, with good sleep and uh, the changes in our behaviors have also you know changed in a way that are not. The greatest when it comes to sleep you know for example we're you know we're being asked to self-isolate and stay home and so people are number one out of their usual routines and you know when when there's no routine and no set schedule that's something that makes it very difficult to maintain a you know the sleep cycle it works based on you know circadian rhythms and kind of a, uh, having a set schedule is kind of one of the, the best things we can do. We call it sleep hygiene. It's the, the like best practices, the same way we, you know, we shower regularly, we, we, you know, try and eat healthy, we exercise. And when it comes to maintaining good sleep patterns, sleep hygiene is what we look to. And, uh, one of the, you know, the core tenets of good sleep hygiene is to maintain a consistent schedule. And for a lot of people, when you know with so many changes now and not having you know your usual routine, it can cause things to be offset. And um, so you know that's one thing. The other thing is there's a lot of staying indoors and not as much exposure to sunlight and you know the circadian pacemaker that we have in the brain, it it runs on light and dark cycles. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think as the weather becomes nicer, I mean, we still have to maintain physical distancing from other people, but hopefully people will be able to maybe step outside and, um, you know, not, not be in the dark most of the day. Um, the, uh, other aspect is the, uh, you know, stress and, uh, and boredom. A lot of people are complaining about just being bored, not having things to do. Uh, And so some people are, not that napping is bad, but excessive napping and sleeping most of the day and especially taking naps later in the day can be disruptive of getting a very continuous uh, sleep at night. So uh, to the extent possible, it's, you know it's difficult now with this all that's going on. Uh, you know, it's a lot of we're being hit with a lot of these things at once, the stress, the you know loss of our usual routine. Um, so we have to work a little extra hard to you know, be mindful of those things and kind of try and and establish a routine. I you know, I actually struggle myself this morning trying to keep my usual you know routine of getting up early. You know, getting a, you know, even though I, there's no commute anymore, you know, there's, uh, you know, I, I, my working hours haven't really changed. But since I'm not commuting to a location, I don't, you know, I don't have that extra time. But I still have to try and force myself to get up at the same time to go down, do my morning exercise it's, it's difficult, but these things uh, I've been finding, at least for myself, or um, keeping a, a routine is, I, I feel much better in the day when I keep, a, 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 maintain some sort of uh, schedule that I adhere to.
1: Oh, I can definitely relate to that. It's been really tempting to enjoy a little bit of this, not having to get out of the house at the same time. And, and I'm uh, by nature more of a night owl and, and like getting up late in the morning. So trying to keep myself on a routine is taking a lot more willpower than I thought it ever could. So I, I could imagine this may be really difficult too. if let's say uh, there's a person with a traumatic brain injury who might be having those cognitive problems of, whether it's memory or executive functions, decision-making, being able to remember that higher-order goal of staying on the schedule, even if you're tempted not to, and there's maybe a, um, a more pleasant answer of staying up late to watch that movie that you had, had your eye on. So what do you think that caregivers can do to help their um, their partner with a traumatic brain injury stay on that routine
0: uh, I think it's you know it's difficult I think it's difficult for everyone including caregivers who themselves may be struggling with these same issues but I think being mindful of the importance of them and uh, not underestimating the importance of maintaining a, a, a schedule um, I think you know it's it's difficult it's uh, I think, it has to start with an intention and you know kind of even writing down a uh, a schedule on paper may make it more salient to kind of this is something that we're going to make as our goal and this is something that you know we're going to work towards i find that when i write things out it keeps it at the forefront of my mind and leaving it in a place where it can be seen on a regular basis is a good reminder to try and stick to some kind of schedule
1: and then maybe keeps everyone accountable.
0: Yeah, that too. Checklists, things like that, I think are really good. And then also doing things to, you know, kind of activities that are going to help you de stress. Uh, I know that you know there's I there's a lot of uh, kind of a magnetic pull of the cell phone <laughs> or the smartphone or, you know, looking at YouTube and. But it's really easy to and it's great to stay informed about what's going on in the world and about what the recommendations are as we move through this pandemic. But I also think it's important to be mindful of not overloading on some of the more anxiety provoking aspects. I think uh, there's just so much access to media that uh, I think that It's very easy to get overwhelmed by uh, everything. So, you know, maybe even limiting the amount of screen Mm -hmm. time on a, you know, going through YouTube videos or or, uh, looking at, uh, you know, coronavirus updates or, um, you know, even setting aside a certain time of day every – like in the morning (laughs) – Look at you know what's going on in the world, and then kind of shut it off because it's it can be very anxiety provoking, and uh, so that's one thing. There's other also other ways to kind of maintain a sense of calm, uh, you know, even in these times. Uh, and you know the the smartphones could be used for for other things. There's YouTube videos on like guided meditation or mindfulness or things like that where you know, set aside time during the day where you can just sit and have a, you know, I, a lot of people, you know, are good with meditation. And I've, I know that a lot of people I've worked with and myself included, I find it difficult to just meditate without any kind of guide. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, I think it takes a lot of, uh, practice to get to that point where you could yeah. just sit and meditate, <laughs> at least for me, because my mind tends to race and, you know, go from thing to thing. Um, so the guided meditations, and I find a lot of them on YouTube are really useful, because you could at least focus on someone's voice to guide you through, kind of get yourself calm and centered. And it takes your mind off of all the stress of all that's going on. And I think that's hugely important for everyone to Uh, set aside some portion of your day dedicated to kind of, it's like an exercise. It's the same way when you exercise a muscle, it gets stronger. It's the same when it comes to that relaxation response, that it's something that is not really, uh, you know, valued in our society like it is in some Eastern cultures. But I think it's something, you know, in other cultures, people grow up with Mm -hmm. it. And it's part of who they are and it's their routine. I think we have to work a little harder to make it a routine and uh, get to the point where we're able to uh, kind of exercise that relaxation muscle, Mm -hmm. so to speak.
1: And I know there's a lot of new apps that have really gotten a lot more traction because people are starting to to recognize that this is Probably important in the day-to-day but really important right now when everyone is experiencing a lot of stress and missing that routine or or let's say they used to go work out at the gym in order to kind of tire themselves out so that they could relax more so later on in the evening. So finding these sorts of new ways to uh, be kind to your body and be able to make sure that you have giving yourself your best shot at a good night of sleep this has become a lot more uh, salient and important right now
0: yeah definitely I think um, we uh, should really really take advantage of all that's available to us and uh, try not to fall into that uh, you know the the pitfall of being overwhelmed by the aspect of social media that is bombarding us with uh, negativity. And again, I think it is important to stay informed, but um, it's, it can be a mm-hmm. slippery slope and when that takes over your day. Then there's also other research looking at the effect of exposure to blue light and, you know, computer screens, mm-hmm. cell phones, those are all emitting what's a, a wavelength that is not really conducive to sleep. Not that it's going to ruin your sleep if you, you know, during the day, but you know, in the night, if you can't sleep, it's not a great idea to go get up and stare at a screen close up, you know, like on your Mm -hmm. cell phone Um, or play cell phone games in bed before you go to sleep.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. So it sounds like being able to, to limit your access to um, computers and media and things a bit of time before you go to bed might be a good idea. Um, so for instance, not watching uh, governor Murphy's briefings on coronavirus right before you fall asleep, that might be a little more stressful. Um, but, but save that from for midday when they air them live.
0: Yeah, that, that's a good point. There's, so there's two things. There's the exposure to blue light and then there's the mm-hmm. content of what you're watching. And most people who do have uh, struggle with insomnia, uh, one of the biggest issues is, I mean, in in certain uh, certain people with disabilities do experience pain as a uh, a barrier to good sleep, but most people do report racing thoughts, and it's just something that it causes a central nervous system to be more aroused, and so anything you could do to You know, put a period of time where you wind down before you you go to sleep, you kind of, you know, disconnect from from the media uh, can really go a long way in, in, uh, you know, helping at least with sleep, falling asleep in the beginning of the night.
1: Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier that strategic napping could be important, so uh, not necessarily napping due to boredom or other reasons but making sure that you're taking a nap when it makes sense and also that you're doing it in a way that is most helpful. Can you tell us a little bit more about what really constitutes a strategic nap yeah. and how they can be used for, for good instead of evil? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, actually, I'm a big proponent of napping from boredom, but <laughs> it's not the best thing <laughs> for your nighttime sleep. You know, there's, there's more people have more time on their hands. They're not out. And about as as much, and so there's just more downtime, and uh, and a lot of times sitting in front of the TV, and it's it's one of the most difficult things is to combat, you know, falling asleep in front of the television just before you go to sleep. It's you know the one of the biggest uh, drivers of a good night's sleep. is So there are two processes that go on with sleep. One of them is a, a circadian process. Which uh, is based on uh, our exposure to light and dark, and we have kind of a pacemaker in the brain that kind of tells us when to sleep and when we should be awake. And there's another process that has more to do with uh, what we call sleep pressure. So when you wake up in the morning, if you think of it, think of it as a as a a balloon. And in the morning, Mm -hmm. and in order to sleep really well, you want to build up enough sleep pressure that your balloon is full so that when you go to sleep at night, your balloon, that full balloon will deflate slowly and your sleep pressure will, you know, go down. But you need a certain amount of pressure in that balloon to get you over the hump to give you a good night of continuous sleep. Uh, In the morning you wake up, your balloon's deflated. The longer you're awake, the more your balloon inflates. The more hours you spend awake, the sleepier you get when nighttime comes again. And so one of, that's one thing that gets disrupted in people with insomnia is that sleep pressure. And uh, that often one of the causes of that is not having your balloon full at the beginning of the night. And one of the things that will deflate that balloon is taking naps, especially too close to bedtime. Now, for insomniacs that are in treatment for insomnia, there are strict guidelines to napping. And someone who is involved in a, a specific treatment for insomnia will probably be given instructions on what to do. So I would always consult with your your doctor on that. But uh, in general, most people have a, a dip in alertness kind of after lunchtime. And there's nothing wrong with taking a brief nap in the afternoon. In fact, some cultures uh, allow for a period of time where everything shuts down for, you know, in the afternoon while people rest. And that's fine. Um, but for, As a general rule, uh, taking too many naps throughout the day is deflating that balloon so that you don't have enough sleep pressure by the time you get to your bedtime to get you over the hump of getting, you know, you you just need a certain amount of pressure that will give you the best chance of getting a continuous night of sleep where you're going to progress through the stages of sleep in an orderly way and you're going to get very restful sleep. Uh, So the danger of napping, especially if it's too close to your bedtime, that really tends to deflate your balloon. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, And taking too many naps in the day will deflate that balloon. Now, there's some people that can take naps during the day and still sleep fine throughout the night. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There's a certain amount of, uh, you know, variation from person to person in uh, in terms of how much sleep we need how much, uh, it's, you know, it tends to hover around seven to nine hours within there for most people. But there are differences, there are individual differences. And there are some people who, you know, might say, I, you know, I take naps during the day, but I sleep fine at night. Well, then that's fine to take naps. Okay. But for people who, you know, you, you kind of have to monitor yourself, if you find that you're not sleeping well at night, maybe think about what you're doing during the day and are you taking naps during the day and what kinds of things are you doing um, to make sure that your balloon is full at, you know, by the time you get into bed so that you can have a more continuous night of sleep. Yeah, there is some individual difference there, but I think uh, it's something to be aware of and something that you can kind of uh, think about. Uh, You know, if, if, you're exhausted and tired, you know, and, and and you're not in a specific treatment where you're not supposed to be napping. Uh, and then by all means, especially if it's a matter of safety right. and you have to drive somewhere or operate heavy machinery, of course, you, you have to take a nap. Um, but the, on the other hand, there's people that will take a nap and then wake up more groggy and you know, especially if, if the nap lasts a certain amount of right. time. So every everyone's different. I think it's a, a matter of monitoring yourself and figuring out what, what works best for you. But it's something to think about if you're having difficulty sleeping at night to kind of reflect on what you're Absolutely. doing during the day.
1: And I know you've been conducting some work on um, on naps and how that helps with cognitive processes. I think you have a, a current study that's not actively recruiting right now just because we're out of the office during the coronavirus, but can you tell us a little bit about the study that that you have ongoing?
0: yes there's uh, so this study does involve napping uh, specifically during uh, rehabilitation so it, it, it we initially started with a pilot study that looked at the effect of uh, taking a nap, and I'm specifically looking at a type of learning. So there's a lot of different kinds of learning that happen during sleep, and uh, so, you know we know that sleep is good for a lot of different kinds of good cognitive functioning is dependent on good sleep. Um, but there's certain stages of sleep that are associated with certain types of learning, and one of those is uh, sta- what we call stage two sleep which makes up a good portion of your sleep at night uh, has been linked to motor learning. So, uh, you know, relearning how to do a new motor skill. So when someone with a stroke or a brain injury is relearning how to button a shirt or use their fine motor skills to, you know, zipper a jacket, uh, things like that, um, that, uh there's been studies that have shown that uh, a nap after a period of intense learning like that will actually improve the retention. so the person will be able to complete the task uh, more accurately and more uh, in a more uh, oh. efficient way after a nap. Uh, and uh, these studies have have looked at people in two different conditions where, One group would get just a period of rest where they would be calm and relaxed, but they wouldn't be sleeping. And the other group would be sleeping. And what they found is that after a period of training where the person is learning the task, and most of these use a kind of a tapping task, so looking at sequencing with, uh, you know, finger tapping, Mm -hmm. um, people were learning the sequence, uh, got better and better and better. And then there was a period of either a nap or rest, and what they found was that after the period of training, people who had the nap, their performance actually jumped and became much much better than it was at the end of training. Whereas people who had just the rest without sleep were kind of where they were at at the end of training. They you know they didn't make any gains, they didn't make any loss. But um, and so the study that I'm looking at now is. Uh, using that uh, same task to kind of look. And the idea is that, you know, if if this is something that helps learning, you know, maybe we can incorporate napping into the rehabilitation process where, you know, after a period of intense motor learning uh, in, in physical and occupational therapy, maybe a nap can help speed up the progress. And so uh, we're starting kind of on a uh, using a, uh, a on an experimental level where we're we're using just this uh, a tapping task to see, and we're uh, the study we're doing now actually involves neuroimaging. So we're looking at what's going on in the brain. and uh, and we're also looking at uh, brain waves to see what stage of sleep the person goes into when they take the nap after the training. And, uh, and so uh, hopefully this will lead to further studies of implementing some kind of a, you know, something into the treatment that, and see if it really does help.
1: Wow. So, and it reminds me of how it was always recommended when you're in school and studying for a big test to make sure you got a good night of sleep the night before, because otherwise you wouldn't necessarily retain it. So it's interesting to see that this Mm -hmm. might be um, helpful on the short term, but really in a very critical period of learning rehabilitation. For anyone who has undergone um, uh, rehabilitation at a, at a, in a formal program, they they know that that's it's it's busy. They they keep you incredibly busy with all of the PT and the OT speech. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, your your schedule is full, so. The amount that you're trying to learn, mm. then, while your body is trying to heal, anything that we can do to give it a boost would be would be huge. Would be huge.
0: Yeah, there's also a, attention, a lot more attention being paid now on the units for nighttime sleep to make sure that people get a good night's sleep at night to make sure they're prepared for the day, because that uh, aspect of sleep that improves learning is not only immediately after you do the task, but nighttime sleep plays a big role. And it prepares you for the next day to have enough energy to have the ability to focus and concentrate. And so sleep is hugely important on so many levels. It also helps your immune system. So, you know, during these times, uh, when we're, you know, so focused on uh, coronavirus, and um, you know, it's important to get a good night's sleep. There's uh, so many things go on during sleep that improve our immune functioning improve your energy during the day. Um, it's uh, important on so many levels.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we talked a bit before about some basic sleep hygiene principles and how uh, someone with maybe um, milder symptoms or, um, or just kind of uh, the average person these days could try to improve their sleep on their own and just kind of pr- using best practice. Um, what would you suggest for people who might be struggling a little bit more and might need some more professional intervention, and especially at this point?
0: The go-to treatment now for insomnia, after years of uh, research, there. So uh, you know, throughout the history of uh, studies on insomnia and the treatment of insomnia especially uh, behavioral type treatments that are uh, uh, not with the use of medication, Um, there's been a number of different approaches that have been shown to be effective. And uh, what we have now is something called CBTI, and that's Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And this has been shown to be as effective as sleep medications in the short term but more effective in the long term uh, in that you know with a sleep medication in a majority of cases when people stop taking the medication they may still continue to have difficulty sleeping whereas uh, most of the studies have shown that with uh, CBTI the treatment is long-lasting and the reason for that is it is a combination treatment that takes these separate approaches that have been shown in their own rights to be effective on their own, and it combines them into one multifaceted treatment. And uh, and it works based on those processes that I was talking about before, the circadian rhythms mm-hmm. and the sleep pressure, or they sometimes they call it process S. Um, which is the, you know, having that balloon being full in the evening so that you have enough pressure to get you through. And by uh, putting all this together into this one treatment protocol, it is has been shown to be extremely effective. Um, there's emerging evidence in traumatic brain injury and in other specific conditions now. Now the research has been, you know done in kind of a general, Population of individuals with insomnia now moving into different uh, different different disorders um, or uh, other disabilities to show that it is effective in these other conditions. Um, sometimes modifications may be needed um, for people who may have cognitive impairment or things like that. But it's extremely effective, and uh, and the effects tend to be long lasting. Um, And so, you know, there are more and more uh, psychologists and nurse practitioners and people usually affiliated with sleep disorder centers um, that are trained in CBTI. Uh, So if, you know, someone is having difficulty, uh, you could also go online and look up, uh, usually there's a Society for uh, Behavioral Sleep Medicine. A lot of the uh, practitioners that that are trained in this are uh, have certification in behavioral sleep medicine. Um, and uh, so it's it's becoming easier and easier to find people who are trained in this, although it's still uh, not as uh, easy to find unless you're looking, through a uh, sleep disorder center will we'll tend to have a referral base so that people can be treated um, but but I think going to your primary care doctor or uh, you know your local sleep disorder center, you know may be a, a good start.
1: I bet that there may be um, potential for CDTI to be, delivered uh, virtually using uh, telemental health services. I know a lot of psychologists are um, starting to do that just so that their their patients aren't kind of left out in the cold during during this time where people might need it the most.
0: Yes, I'm you know, I'm glad you said that because there's actually uh, have been studies that have shown it, this to be effective via telehealth. So uh, even before oh. this uh, before the coronavirus, people were looking at this to be able to have a larger outreach so that um, people who are able to deliver this kind of treatment can do it, uh, you know, either even over the phone um, for, so that you can reach people in, you know, more rural communities or people that don't have transportation or are not able to, you know, go regularly. And and typically, it, you know, within four or six, some, of, some programs, it's four, six or eight sessions and you know that said maybe with some booster sessions afterwards but it's not the kind of treatment that lags on forever it's uh you know it's relatively short term
1: yeah.
0: and very focused and um and you know it's uh, very effective
1: this has been a great conversation and a lot of really interesting information about why it's important to focus on good sleep habits and being aware of what sleep disorders might be hanging around for the general population, but also for people with disabilities like traumatic brain injury. And uh, we'll make sure to include some of the resources that you mentioned and uh, other things that we think might be helpful for you listeners in our program notes. Check out our playlist for additional podcasts on our coronavirus series. Thank you so much, Dr. LeCarricka, for being our guest today on Sleep Disorders. And take care of yourself.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Tuned into our podcast lately?
1: Join our listeners in 90 countries who enjoyed learning about the work of Kessler Foundation. In new episodes, our experts weigh in on the impact of COVID-19 on people living with disabilities. And they talk about how research that changes
0: lives continues at Kessler Foundation. Check back soon to listen to more COVID-19 podcasts on our playlist. The link is in the program notes.
1: Listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, April 8, 2020,
0: remotely, and was edited and produced by Joan Banksmith, smith creative producer for Kessler Foundation.